0: Hello, I'm Simon Long, finance and economics editor at The Economist, and this is Money Talks. Later in the programme, Indonesia's energy transformation. It thinks that solar can become much more important
1: than wind, but it also wants to develop hydro, electricity and gas,
0: which are relatively underdeveloped. And sand. It may seem abundant, but in fact, it's a scarce resource, with demand outstripping the rate at which it's naturally replenished.
2: Because... Regulations aren't enforced well enough. Not a week goes by without reports of the goings-on of the San Mafia in India.
0: But first, a bit of luxury. It seems that almost every week on Money Talks, we touch at some point on the massive economic impact of China's rise. Perhaps in no business is that more true than the luxury goods sector. The emergence of a Chinese middle class with money to spend... And few inhibitions about flaunting it led to a boom for expensive fashion, luggage, and watches. But under President Xi Jinping, a crackdown on perceived corruption has made Chinese consumers more diffident about showing off their wealth. How's that affected the luxury business? Adam Roberts, our European Business and Finance editor, has been investigating and joins me now on the line from Paris. Uh, Adam, of course, I can't see you, but I assume you're wearing your, your usual Ferragamo tie and Gucci loafers.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm fully decked out this morning. Yes. But
0: uh, let's talk a bit first about the, the structure of this industry. Is it uh, a few conglomerates or, or lots of small manufacturers?
3: Well, the industry has been changing in the last few years. There's, there's a lot of minnows, there's loads and loads of small companies with revenues up to you know a maximum of, of a few hundred million euros. There's a, a few big uh, sort of mid-sized ones, the likes of Zegna in Italy, for example, who are independent and have revenues in the, the low billions. And then there's a few giants, the, the conglomerates, the likes of LVMH, Caring, Richemont, these groups that have pulled together many, many well-known brands into conglomerates, into, into houses. And so the structure's changed, those conglomerates have grown up in the last 10, 20, 30 years. And as the industry has grown fast, all those uh, different sized groups have been able to prosper.
0: And how seriously has the business been hit by the new nervousness in China?
3: So the Decision a few years ago, as you described at the beginning by Xi Jinping, to discourage the conspicuous consumption that had been driving the growth of the luxury industry in China, that decision did certainly hit the industry as a whole. China now accounts for something like 30% of global sales of luxury goods, and so that slowdown was a, was a serious problem for the luxury industry as a whole. Years of rapid growth have given way to much, much lower growth. So rather than 8 or 10% global growth, we've seen something down to sort of more like 3, 4, 5% growth. Obviously, there are other markets. The United States has been important. Europe is still important for consumption of these goods. But the, the loss of the Chinese growth really hit the momentum and took the wind out of the sails of the, of the luxury goods companies. In particular, China had been growing very fast because of the building of lots of shopping malls. The, the growth of retail space was hugely important for the luxury industry, and that seems to have come to something of a plateau as well. So that even if China continues to get richer, nobody expects the same sort of booming growth that we saw in the last 10 or 15 years.
0: But are we seeing something of a shake-up? Is there consolidation going on?
3: Well yes, there are other trends of course as well as what's happening in China. So the rise of digital commerce, we've seen it affect every other industry, so it will affect the luxury goods industry too. The rise of digital online luxury sales is going to matter enormously for this industry. So far the companies, the brands have been quite slow to get into this. We're going to see LVMH launch a platform in May to encourage the, not just the research into luxury goods that consumers do, but actually the purchasing of luxury goods online. But they may have been a bit slow. We've seen independent platforms the likes of net or Rent-A-Runway, these online operators who are not producers themselves, but are trying to educate consumers that they can buy luxury goods online as well as in, in bricks and mortar shops.
0: And if their customers are spending that much time online, presumably these firms know quite a lot about them.
3: Well, that, as in many industries, is going to be the golden goose. Uh, it's not just about the products, it's not just about how you sell things, it's knowing information about your customers. That's absolutely crucial for the brands, it's crucial for the conglomerates. The vital thing to know is who your customer is, the details that perhaps a good relationship between a salesman and a customer means that they get to know all sorts of personal things, the name of your dog, whether you do the shopping or your wife does the shopping, but now it's more and more obvious that there are super spenders, the absolutely dominant spenders. So for some very high-end brands, Chanel and Hermes and so on, just 5% of your consumers might account for about 40% of all your sales. And so it's absolutely crucial to know as much as you can about who is buying what.
0: Isn't there some sort of internal contradiction in the whole business model? That on the one hand, they want to go mass market and increase their customers. On the other, the whole point is that they're expensive and exclusive.
3: Yes, it is a contradiction. I can't name the person, but last year I was chatting to the boss of one of the big conglomerates who said that's exactly the dilemma they face. The more successful they become, the more danger there is that they lose the sense of exclusivity. Uh, It's a reason not to open too many shops. It's a reason to be quite conservative about how you develop your online presence. You want to preserve the idea that only a small elite can really have access to to your goods. There are ways of dealing with that and the individual I spoke to last year said it was essentially resolved by putting up the price, you know, if if no handbag can be cheaper than a thousand euros then you are quite effectively limiting who can buy your goods but it is a dilemma that the the high end, the very very high end of the luxury sector face On the other hand, it's an opportunity for the likes of premium producers, those who see that there's a growing demand for expensive, high-quality goods, but perhaps from people who can't quite afford the insane prices for the most expensive goods.
0: Adam Roberts, European Business and Finance Editor, thank you very much for joining us and we'll let you get back to your shopping. And now to India. One of the big worries about whether the world can cut carbon emissions to the extent needed to contain global warming has been India's power sector. Its electricity generation is heavily dependent on coal-fired power stations, many of them using quite dirty coal. But might this be changing? I'm joined now by Henry Trix, The Economist's Energy and Commodities editor. Henry... One of the big concerns about people who are worried about climate change is India and the fact that its economic growth has seemed to rely on burning ever larger amounts of dirty coal long into the future. Is that worry still there?
1: The worry uh, has been there
0: since the Paris
1: agreements were signed in 2015. The surprising thing which we report on this week is really how far and how fast India appears to be moving in terms of developing renewable energy and reducing its dependence on coal. There's been some auctions recently in the the last few months in which the price of solar energy has literally crashed below that of uh, coal-fired power stations, which is considered very good news in terms of the government's ambition of producing a massive amount of solar energy in the next few years. I mean, India has one of the most ambitious solar expansion plans of all countries, of any country in the world. Um, But also what's emerging is that India is also reducing its dependence on coal and um, is cutting back on the number of new coal plants that it wants to build or that it plans to build. Not quite or not at the level that China is sort of moving away from coal, but still significant nonetheless.
0: From what you say, it sounds as if this is a purely economic decision. It's not that it's suddenly seen the light on global warming and realizes that its emissions could help cook the planet.
1: I think that's, that's fair. There is definitely an economic rationale here, but I don't think one should underestimate the fact that, first of all, the Indian government sees the risk of climate change on its own country, but also you know, there are issues such as pollution in India which it wants to mitigate. And I would imagine that it also does see some benefit in a sort of global pat on the back for India for doing its bit.
0: You mentioned solar, but presumably it's not just solar. There's also wind, nuclear, hydro, uh, LNG.
1: Well, coal is by far the largest part of uh, of India's power capacity. And and amongst the renewables, wind at this point is much bigger than solar. Now, the government wants to change that around. It wants solar. It thinks that solar can become much more important than wind, but it also wants to develop hydroelectricity and gas, which are relatively underdeveloped. The problem that it faces is that with all this coal capacity out there, coal is not very good at balancing the intermittency Um, in electricity supply caused by renewables. So it doesn't really help stabilise the grid. They need different types of technology that work to keep India's electricity grid stable. And uh, so basically, it needs more hydroelectricity and more more gas as well as more renewables and
0: less coal. And I suppose the other cautionary note one should sound is that India is, of course, still chronically short of electricity, I mean, a large proportion of households are not connected to the grid.
1: Yes, there's something like 240 million people in India who are still not connected to the grid. India has a, um, a huge sort of a, a, a real obligation to somehow get electricity to these people. And, and certainly the, go- the government of uh, Prime Minister Modi wants to do that. It's a challenge, though. Um, many of these people live in rural communities the grid companies the the utilities that put the poles and wires to get to these places are pretty much bankrupt or at least have been in a very weak financial position for a long time. So they haven't been able to do it. I guess the big hope will be eventually that, you know, companies come in as they have been doing in Africa and put more rooftop solar into these communities and give them the ability to be able to charge their smartphones and, you know, charge televisions and that sort of thing. But India has emphasise more sort of big solar installations rather than small rooftop-based power up until now.
0: Henry Trix, thank you very much for joining us. Nice to have basically a good news story for a change. Thank you. If you have any thoughts on what you hear on Money Talks, do get in touch. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Finally, let's talk silicon. Sand is the most extracted mineral in the world. A 2014 report by the United Nations estimates it accounts for up to 85% of all the material mined in the world each year. It's an essential input for concrete and asphalt manufacture. A smaller quantity of finer grade sand is used to produce glass, electronics, and particularly in America, to extract oil from shale rock during the fracking process but booming construction activity has encouraged illegal sand mining. I'm joined in the studio by The economist Rachana Shanbhog. Rachana, where are the hotspots for this illegal
2: mining? Well, Simon, we're seeing a lot of illegal mining in India, where there's a really rapidly growing construction sector. And because regulations aren't enforced well enough, the returns to sand mining appears more and more lucrative. Not a week goes by without reports of... um, the goings-on of the sand mafia in India.
0: Presumably they're dealing mainly with Indian customers but globally where where is the big demand for sand?
2: By far the, the largest consumer of sand is Asia. And in particular, over half of all the sand consumed goes to China, where uh, construction activity is particularly rapid. The Chinese government says that it's built about 32 million houses and about 4.5 million kilometres of road, and all of that requires sand. And growth in India and the Middle East isn't far behind either.
0: And are, are all sands alike? Is it one unified market?
2: Surprisingly, no. You might think that because there are deserts covered with sand, sand is an abundant resource. But desert sand is actually too fine to be used for commercial purposes.
0: I mean, it's hard to believe that the world is really running out of sand. What what evidence do you have for this?
2: Well, um, the case of Singapore is a really interesting example. Uh, Singapore has expanded its landmass by about over 20% since it became independent. And that's largely by dumping vast quantities of sand into the sea. The problem is that now neighbouring countries will no longer export sand to Singapore because islands have been vanishing and coastlines have been thinning. And so Singapore has had to start importing sand from further and further away and even make plans to start reclaiming land using other techniques that are less sand-intensive.
0: So there are techniques for land reclamation that don't use sand. What substitutes are there in other industries?
2: There are actually plenty of substitutes for sand. Mud can be used for reclamation instead of sand. Asphalt and concrete could be recycled. And straw and wood can be used to build houses. And it's likely that as sand becomes more expensive, builders start shifting towards these other substitutes. And that, in advanced countries, is being helped by regulation. The problem is, in, the, in developing countries, regulation isn't very well enforced yet.
0: Rachana Shemburg, thank you very much for that granular report. And that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. And do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist.
3: Are you ready to enhance your future in tech?